Welcome to Books and Ideas Audio, a presentation of the Vancouver Writers' Fest. The Vancouver Writers' Fest connects people to exceptional books, ideas, and dialogue through year-round programming that ignites a passion for words and the world around us. We carry out our work on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. We're thrilled to share the following conversation with the legendary Margaret Atwood. The author of over 50 books, Atwood joined us to discuss her latest work, the mesmerizing short story collection, Old Babes in the Wood, with award-winning author Ian Williams. If you're looking for more brilliant conversations like this one, you're in luck. We've just announced our program guide for this year's week-long festival in October, featuring over 125 authors in 85 events. Tickets go on sale September 18th, and you can learn more at our website, writersfest.bc.ca. This event from our May bestseller series was recorded live on May 7th, 2023, and presented in partnership with Scotia Wealth Management and with support from the Chan Endowment Fund at the University of British Columbia. We'd also like to thank our public sector funders, the Government of Canada, the Canada Council for the Arts, the BC Arts Council, the Government of BC, the City of Vancouver, and CMHC Granville Island. to all of you. My name is Leslie Hertig and I'm the Artistic Director at the Vancouver Writers Fest. It is my pleasure to welcome you to our bestseller series opening event in partnership with Scotia Wealth Management. Tonight we are honored to present Margaret Atwood in conversation with Ian Williams. I'd like to start by acknowledging that the Vancouver Writers Fest carries out its work on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Tonight, we are hosted on the lands of the Musqueam First Nation. We are cognizant of the history of these lands and the great amount of work that still needs to be done as we move toward meaningful, recognition, meaningful reconciliation and Indigenous sovereignty. We would like to thank, yes. We would like to thank our event partners this evening, Scotia Wealth Management, with support from the Chan Endowment Fund at the University of British Columbia. Also, in this post-pandemic time, we are more thankful than ever to our public sector funders, and they include the Government of Canada, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Government of BC, the BC Arts Council, the City of Vancouver, and CMHC Granville Island. And thank you also to Penguin Random House for making Margaret's visit here possible this evening. Speaking of the pandemic, here is a little story for you, something from behind the scenes. Not unlike most arts organizations, the pandemic was very hard on the Vancouver Writers' Fest. Big special events like this one simply couldn't happen, and these are our bread and butter for funding our festival in October. We found ourselves in a difficult position going into this new year, and we faced some serious questions about what the festival might look like in October. That's when the founder of this festival, Alma Lee, had an idea to call up Margaret Atwood. She'll help us. So I got on the horn to her, and you know what? She said, you bet, I'll be there. Tell me what you want me to do.
And then Ian Williams said exactly the same thing, and he flew across the country. For those of you new to the Vancouver Writers' Fest, we present year-round literary programming culminating in our festival on Granville Island. This year, that festival will take place from October 16th until the 22nd, and you can always find information about our year-round programming on our website. The format tonight is pretty straightforward. Ian Williams and Margaret Atwood will chat for about an hour, and then if there's time, they will turn it over to you for a couple of questions. I encourage you to put your questions in the form of a question. <laughs> there are going to be microphones up at the front here and here, and if you're able to come up and line up for those questions, we'd really appreciate that. However, if you're unable to come up to the front, please just make yourself known this way, and we'll have a runner down below come with a cordless mic for you. There will not be a book signing after this event, but Margaret spent a great deal of time signing a lot of copies of her book, and those are available thanks to our wonderful bookseller, Black Bond Book Warehouse. Those books will be for sale after the event as well, and I encourage you to pick up a signed copy because what a treasure. Now, on to our event. Ian Williams is the Scotiabank Giller Prize winning author of Reproduction. He is an award-winning poet, and his latest book is an essay collection, Disorientation, Being Black in the World, which was a finalist for the Hillary Weston Writers' Trust Nonfiction Prize. Ian is the director of the Creative Writing Program at the University of Toronto. Margaret Atwood's latest book is a collection of short stories entitled Old Babes in the Wood, full of her trademark wit, sharp reflections on the state of current discourse, not to mention a gentle and piercingly honest look at grief. Old Babes in the Wood is a gorgeous addition to her more than 50 published works, which have captured some of the world's top literary prizes. Please welcome Ian Williams and Margaret Atwood. What a warm welcome. Hello, Vancouver. <laughs> Hello, Vancouver. It's great to be in this one of the most beautiful cities in the country here. Um, so we're going to get to some good heavy stuff a little bit later on, but we're going to start with fashion, okay? Just right at it. <laughs> and you can't quite see this, but uh, like decorating here, there's this pin with like a hand on it. Uh, it's made of tin, you were saying there? What is this? It's, it's not, doesn't come with the shirt. No, dear. <laughs> what, what, no, where'd got, you get this? It's got letters on it. Okay, so somebody gave it to me when my book, The Robber Bride, came out uh, because it had a hand on the cover that was very similar. I think it was going like that rather than like this. But it, it's, a, it's a variation on a thing you see in the Middle East quite a bit, which is the hand of Fatima, which has a, an eye in it. Eye. An yeah. eye in it. And it's an, an evil eye charm. So it's against the evil eye. Oh. And you meant to wear this over your heart? Oh, I think you can wear it just any old place. Um, I have, a, I have a, a scarf with the same design on it, and you can get, you probably have seen them around. They're these blue glass uh, eye things that you can get them in the form of a pin. You can get them as on a chain. Um, so I just thought it would be 
you're something for you right to now. talk about. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're safe. You're protected. I think about you as, and my love for Margaret Atwood is like I think well known here. Um, I think about you as Canadian Shakespeare, right? Like we will never talk about literature in this country <laughs> without talking about you. It's, yeah, um, just like there's a Shakespeare or Chaucer and a Milton course just devoted, there's an Atwood course in addition to Canadian Lit. And I also think about you as literary Madonna, right? Now, which one? <laughs> right. right. Let's go with the blonde ambition one, right? So, well, I, I did um, really envy that moment when she got carried in inside an egg. Right. You know, it doesn't long to be carried somewhere inside an egg, but I don't They're think it was. Oh, like Derivation, that's Lady Gaga, right? Derivation of Madonna. Oh, that, that's, that wasn't, that's right, it was Lady Gaga. Well, either one. Right. Yeah. Because of the longevity, because of your influence, because of that sort of, uh, I don't know, feminist icon kind of thing, like with, with Madonna, it's a literary icon, and like personally, I think about you as like my fairy godmother, right? <laughs> so, they, they can be rather ambiguous characters. I know, I realize both sides of that. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah. you told me a very weird thing, actually. Uh, you, you said that... My book, my book of poetry, The Circle Game, when you were in high school, that's right. was the first right. book of poetry that, that you bought, bought. And I with thought, my own money, that's right. That is quite weird. That's right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right, my brother was saving for Jordans, and I just wanted, like, you know, poetry collection. Did you already know that you were going to be a poet? Did no, you I didn't know, know that. I spent summers of... with you. I've spent so much time with you, that <laughs> more time than you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this weekend, like, you know, in Nashville, I was spending the weekend reading you. I, yeah. Um, but so I think about you as family, right? Like, my literary career is just not possible without you. Like, it's just that simple, right? You open up avenues in my brain. But who's your literary family? Like, who's your fairy godmother? I think, like, George... Orwell has got to be in your family tree. Oh, somewhere. absolutely. Yes, yeah. he ruined my life when I was a child. <laughs> because I read, I read Animal Farm, and right. nobody explained to me that it was a parable, it was an allegory. I thought these were real animals. I thought it was going to be like wind in the willows, and then I'm going to have picnics and, you know, rowing boats. And that didn't happen. And then it was sort of the, the fate of the horse has always just ruined me. And in fact, I read it. I read that part on Australian radio and made the hardened tough Australians cry because it's so it's so awful. This horse right. has devoted his life. Right. That's and now he's going to be sent off to the glue factory. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean it's sort of like academia. Never mind. <laughs> 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 Open a question there for me. How about like I feel like the Victorians are in your family somewhere too, right? Like, well, I was once a long time ago, and I still am to a certain extent um, a Victorianist. Mm. So that was my period that I studied mm. AMA about the Victorians, including their underwear, uh, which is the, the hardest thing to research when you're doing an historical novel. It's always the underwear, because you can see paintings of people, but they, have, they don't have their underwear on display. <laughs> so there's a very, if you're interested in this stuff at all, there's a very good YouTube series called Prior Attire. <laughs> and uh, she is a clothing 
uh, historical clothing recreation. She recreates historical clothing, oh. and in her YouTube series, she shows you how people put it on. Like, oh. what was the substructure? Right. Why is it that shape? The corsets and everything? Everything, like yeah. that. Yeah. So different periods, so you can get the 17th century, the 19th century, and she shows you putting it all on, and... Um, She's really good, so oh, no. prior attire, highly recommended. <laughs> and the other thing, if you're histor researching historical novels, it's a, quite a thick book called The Book of Costume. Oh. It's by a woman called Milia Davenport, and she goes from the ancient Greeks all the way up to um, the early 20th century, and she does accessories as oh. well as the main thing. So snuff boxes, wigs, canes, oh. you know, all, all of the extra things that you would need. And uh, with, with prior attire, she puts this stuff on, and she looks like a painting oh. when she has it all on. She's just great. And they could just stage it all, right? Stage the back background? Yeah, well, well. It, it makes you realize that these paintings were of what people actually looked or, like. When I saw you in the fall, we were both in costume, right? I had like flowers in my hair and you were dressed as, I was gonna say a wizard, but like a, a benevolent witch, can we say? Was that the, the costume you were going for? I remember that. Yeah, sort of, yeah, I, I had a wand right. uh, and I dyed my hair blue. Right. Actually, I dyed my hair green, but it came out, it was supposed to be blue. Um, I got that, there was a gesture with you and so, yeah. yeah. So your family, how about your siblings then? Like if you had to think about, so Orwell is like your papa, Papa Orwell. And like your siblings. Oh, I think Papa goes back further than that. I would For, include Shakespeare, oh, my yeah. my guy. Huh. Uh, love, um, yeah, because we we took all that in high school. Right, right. We we are of the generation that read long books. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas Hardy, <laughs> Thomas Tale Hardy. of Two right. Cities. Right, the Dickens. So the nineteenth well. century novel, great age of the novel. Um, and not confined just to English novels. So the, the Russian novel, the French novel. Beautiful. Uh, I just read a lot. Yeah. Because we didn't have TV. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that people didn't have TV. My parents didn't have TV. Right. They refused to get it. Apparently I said I will be a social outcast, but that, that didn't change their minds. <laughs> oh, right. something a little weird for you, okay? If you had to think about your career purely through the implements that you use to write, okay? So take right. me from the beginning, from like pen and paper. Pencil. Pe okay, pencil. I started early. <laughs> pencil all the way to, I'm not even sure what you're using right now. Like what? Magic. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing as a kid, what were you okay, were so the first to, thing, right? Yeah, yeah, so I had an older brother who was quite a prolific uh, writer of books. In fact, he, uh, we, we both did the same thing. We, we made the books out of paper that you folded and then you sewed it up the spine and you had a cover. Mm -hmm. And on the inside of one, one of his covers, he has 
also by the same author. <laughs> so I knew what this book was supposed to be, and I, I was imitating him. Right. Uh, but he had a whole series going that it took place on another planet. Wow. Uh, it was during the war. That would be World War II, not World War One. I'm not that old. <laughs> um, and, of course, he had a lot of explosions and wars, and we each had a set of colored pencils, and he traded me. Uh, I got his pink, silver, and gold, and he got my red, orange, and and uh, yellow for the explosions. <laughs> right. He made a lot of explosions. And then he got to a point after he'd written several sagas. I think his first one began. There were uh, there were there were twins, and their names were Alfred, Ben, and John. <laughs> they were. They called them twins. He was fairly young. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, okay. told, they were they were rabbits. I have to tell you, <laughs> flying uh, rabbits. Um, so after doing some wars, he 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 became a biologist, and you can see the transition because he started writing the flora and fauna of these oh. planets. And he's got one called What's on Saturn? Oh. And I'm telling you, you don't want to go there because <laughs> everything is either cannibalistic or toxic. I mean, you would step off the spaceship and you would immediately get eaten by some kind of plant. Or <laughs> it's a good plot, right? Well, <laughs> easy plotting. Yeah, you know, these were flora and fauna books. He would have the Latin name, he would have a drawing. Right. Uh, so he was doing that. So, what were my first what were books? You yeah. I was quite sucky. I was using the pink, the silver, and the gold to draw princesses. And, oh. Oh, don't make them. <laughs> but I also had um, some superheroes, and they were, they were flying rabbits. And uh, <laughs> they had little capes. One of them had a stripy cape, and one of them had spots on it. And you can see them on the end papers of a book of mine called In Other Worlds, which is about sci-fi and speculative fiction. I drew the end papers. Yeah. So I just recreated them for that purpose. So kind of like an early pigoon or something like that, right? Like A, a lot of hybrid forms <laughs> were taking place. But my first book was just poems, which I copied down poems I knew. And then because there were some empty pages, I made up some just so it would fill it all out. Right. And then I wrote my first novel. It was called Annie the Ant. It was about an ant. It, it, it had a plot problem because ants... She worked all the time. Well, ants do, don't do much for the first three quarters of their life. They're an egg. Nothing happens. <laughs> they're a larva. Nothing happens. They're a, uh, they're a pupa. Nothing really happens. And not until they come out and have legs do they do anything. Right. So there was a plot problem at the beginning, but I've never done, I've never made that mistake since. If there have to be some slow parts, I put them in as flashbacks. Right. Uh, <laughs> That's great. So this is all like drawing handwritten here, right? This is all written in pencil with illustrations, pencil. yeah. Illustrations. Do you still draw? I still draw. I haven't seen cartoons in a long time. That's because you haven't been reading my Substack. <laughs> Yeah, really? I thought I've got a Doug Ford cartoon in there. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> Ontario yes. people here, yeah. Yes, I used to do a series called Book Tour Comics, 
And uh, I sent them to my publishers for Christmas to make them feel guilty. <laughs> uh, <but they> put, <laughs> so I put a couple of those on my Substack. You can see book tour comics from The Robber Bride. You can see The Blind Assassin being launched in, in uh, Whitehorse. Oh, wow. Which is where I did it. Yeah. Yes, the audience has some owls and moose in it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tell me about the typewriter phase. Okay, so, the typewriter phase. I made uh, a, What years? I, well, then I graduated to cursive because we used to <laughs> learn to write that with ink and pens with little steel nibs. Right. Then, because uh, ballpoint pens weren't invented yet. Oh. It was a long, long time. <laughs> Then they did get invented, but they were not satisfactory at right. the beginning. So you used to get letters from your boyfriends in the summer with these big blobs. <laughs> right. you know, I'm longing for a blob. Look <laughs> 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 all these blots. Uh, so ballpoints arrived in fountain pens. Right. So I used to write in fountain pen. Right. Um, and then I made a bad mistake in high school. I should have taken... Um, secretarial sciences as my extra option. Right. But I did not do that. Oh. I should have done, then I would have learned to type. I type. also would have learned to shorthand. So useful. Um, is well, actually, time, if yeah. you're a journalist, it's very useful. But instead, I took home economics. <laughs> <laughs> Don't laugh. But now you can. You could knit, probably, right? Oh, I could knit before then anyway. <laughs> yeah, I was an early Jams. knitter. Oh. Yeah, so I was a very early knitter, crocheter, and, and maker of uh, crafted um, dolls' outfits like that. I used to do that. Uh, so I did do the home economics, but we could tell there was going to be a transitional moment in my life because... We were going to do a special project, and the home economics teacher made a mistake. She let us vote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the perils of democracy. You don't know what people are going to vote for. So she wanted us to vote for making stuffed animals, right, that we were going to donate to sick children. Oh. I did not wish to make the stuffed animals. I, I knew not care about the sick children. No, no, I didn't. I cared about them, but not enough. <laughs> <laughs> I knew the perils of curved seams. These were going to involve a lot of curved seams, and it was going to be a pain in the neck. Yeah. So I, I, got, I subverted the class and got them to vote for doing a home economics opera. <laughs> <laughs> and she had to go along with it because she let us vote, right? Yeah. So she said, yes, as long as it had a home economics theme. So it did. It's about three fabrics. <laughs> Orlon, nylon, and dacron. I, I played Orlon. I've got, I've got pictures. Uh, and for years afterwards, I would run into people at readings who had been in this. <laughs> you could still sing the songs. Uh, anyway, so that was a, an early part of my writing life. I have a, a fatal talent for pastiche and uh, parody, right. which has never okay. actually gone away. Oh, so yes, another whole side of my life. But at the same time, I was writing these very, very serious poems about, as I look back, the Hungarian Revolution. That was... Uh, 
1956 was happening in the at the same time as the Home Economics Opera. High school, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah right. so like that. So the typewriter, yeah. So I, I I was using my mother's typewriter to type out these things, and you would type them out. You would, you always had to put your name at the top, right? Uh, and you had to put a self-addressed stamped envelope. Um, and then send them off to some publication that would right. send them back. Or and if you didn't include the envelope, you would never hear anything. But if you did, you might hear, this is not those. suitable for us at this time. <laughs> uh, like that. Right. It was present well into the 90s, right? The self-addressed stamped envelope, right? You needed so, to do it. Yeah. And with a, a you fiction that. manuscript, you had to put your name on every page because they would drop them on the floor. <laughs> and if you didn't have your name That's on, right. they wouldn't know <laughs> That's right. whose pages these were. So uh, how long did you use the typewriter, and then electric typewriter, and then computer, I'm assuming, right? Okay, so if I first had the Remington from the 1930s. I was yeah. using that. Then I got a little portable. Mm. Uh, then, um, what did I do? I got my first electric typewriter, which I thought was, wow. Yeah. This is amazing. I had one in the 90s. I lived by it. It was great. I had two, actually. Well, yeah. this was this would have been in the 60s. Oh, wow. An early electric. <laughs> I was late to that party. You weren't born yet. Yeah. Um, but then a later electric typewriter was the one with the bouncing ball that oh. you could pull up the ball and put another ball on and great. do italics. But this did not change the fact that I was a bad typist. Because <laughs> um, I was. I was always a bad typist, and I would have to give my badly typed manuscripts with the white out with the little brush right. and the little white strips that you right. stuck in and typed over, type over it. Right. I had to give them to a real typist who would type it up and make it look good right. Right. because I was really a bad typist. So when computers arrived, I was quite happy because you could correct right on the page and nobody would know right. the awful typos that you had made. Right. As primitive as programs were back in like the 80s and 90s or so in the computer, it revolutionized everything, right? Like, you know, you didn't quite have to be so careful with that, with that typewriter. But there was something really great about composing on a typewriter, I thought, right? There's something really great yeah. about composing in handwriting, which I still do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But because it's because I can't touch type. But mm. I remember the first computers, the window was about like that. And then you had floppy disks, and you right. put them the big in. Big ones, yeah. You could get maybe two chapters on it, and they would, then they would get stuck inside the machine. <laughs> and you needed a hairpin. You had to That's have right. this hairpin. So I had a very good hairpin technique. <laughs> there's, there's a whole like music to it too, right? Like the sound of the computers back then. This typewriter's clear sound there. But the computers, every time the floppy disk was like booting up, right? You would hear it like scratching and like working there, like little animals inside of your computer. Um, I can see I, you imprinted on this. What? You imprinted on this experience. It was, sorry, we've talked a lot about typewriters, everyone. <laughs> but no, it was really important for me, right? I could sort of have see pages stacking up and all of that. Um, but now it feels almost too easy to have like multiple drafts floating around, if, you know, on my hard drive, right? It's it's just totally different. Well, once upon a time, mm. stuff stuff would just vanish. Mm. It would just disappear off your computer. Yeah. You, there was no way of getting it back. Yeah. That was horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Still, actually, but that's, that's scary. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about old babes in the woods here. So, um, 
it's great. Like the adjective I have for you in mind is like you are tough, right? Like you have been uh, tough from the beginning of your career to this point. And yet I read this and there was this, both the familiar and the comforting sense that, you know, that I know this voice, this voice has been with me for, you know, 30, 30 years or That's something. That's kind of right? horrifying. <laughs> no, it's still there. I'm still familiar with it. I recognize it all the time. And there's that real pleasure. Um, you know, there's so much like interest in the debut author and the brand new voice. And the, that's all great for a while, right? But then you come back to someone else like, yeah, yeah, she's still got it, right? I still feel comfortable with this person. I love this word still. <laughs> <laughs> Always got it, Ben. Um, but then there's a, this real vulnerability here. It's a quite personal collection. So this toughness of you, that you're quite consistent, and at the same time, there's this kind of surprise or growth and development that, that is, is present here in this. Do you feel exposed in this present short story collection? What would exposed feel like? I don't know, like nonfiction, I think. So, I would feel like right, nonfiction. Like nonfiction, right? Or well, I've written like a lot of nonfiction, too. Yeah. I don't know whether exposed is quite the hmm. um, word. Right. I, I just, I try to be accurate. Right. Uh, so I, I feel that I'm being accurate to certain kinds of experiences. Mm. Yeah. Like that. Right. And those kinds of experiences involve um, emotions you might prefer not to be having. Absolutely. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. There's a, there's like a stance in power politics where you talk about like uh, the lover is like an aerial map of a lover and there's like a target on him, like all his parts exposed, right? And it's a quite vicious speaker in, in power politics, right? Like really, uh, it's the please die so I can write about it speaker. It's the, I approach his love like a biologist speaker. It's a really quite fierce speaker. Um, yeah, I think people are meaner when they're younger. Uh, there's a biting truth to it, right? Like that's it's my favorite pro poetry Some people are meaner when they're younger. Other people get meaner when they're older. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's a spectrum there. Yeah, I think I was quite mean when I was younger. You were just right, actually. You felt I was just that was right. true Isn't to like great? accurate, <laughs> no, like accurate to like experience there. And you were, if you were mean, you were in a, mean in a way that like kids like us wish we could be, right? So, yeah, you were. I can like, give you lessons. <laughs> <laughs> you can give me a meanness. I could be your meanness coach. <laughs> Good. Good. No, so this is really, so you are a pretty big target now, right? And so this sense of like being exposed or being vulnerable, um, there are people who would delight in having the opportunity to know where your vulnerable spots oh, are. Oh, yes, dear. <laughs> well, good luck to them. Right. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a story about Sam, my next door neighbor, oh. a curmudgeon lawyer. Oh, what's this? So he came out, um, I was sweeping my leaves off my drive in October. Mm. So Sam comes out and he says, Margaret. You shouldn't let people see you doing that. And I say, Sam, what are you talking about? He said, it's the broom. <laughs> it's the broom. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Not a look for you. <laughs> so I said, uh, Sam, uh, whatever are you employing? And he said, right. <laughs> said, well, Margaret, don't you know they call you the wicked witch of the annex? Right. And I said, uh, Sam... Right. Fear inspires more respect than love. <laughs> <laughs> said, uh, Margaret, you're right. 
<laughs> I mean, elsewhere you so say. So sure, bring it on. Right. <laughs> I'm going to read a chunk here from, from this, right? And this is, there's a story here. Uh, where the speaker, uh, it's Atwood here, the speaker, is in conversation with George Orwell, right? It's just like a, a transcript of that conversation uh, from the dead. He's being sort of channeled in. And so we're going to read a little chunk from this. Um, and here's Atwood. Things have become quite polarized. There are party lines now, too, though the targets are different. And social banishments still happen, but they're called cancelings. And his response, ha, like a stamp, like a concert, good word choice. And I became quite discouraged at moments, I must admit. What's the point of telling the truth if nobody wants to hear it? This idea of like canceling, I think is terrifying a generation of writers, right? Like, But it's not the first thing. time. What's so these things have gone through cycles like forever. Yeah. Uh, let us say, so George Orwell, of course, got quite a lot of criticism uh, because he was saying things that some people didn't want to hear, although right. they were true. Right. Um, especially about the Soviet Union at that time, which had its, its devoted adherents mm -hmm. in England. Um, so you know that 1984 is basically about uh, that kind of society. It's about a totalitarian society. And, um, and he got quite a few people on the, the so-called left who just didn't want to hear that. Right. 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 And persisted in thinking Stalin was the greatest even after what he had done got, got exposed. Right. Yeah, so this has happened lots of times before, but there, there are moments in uh, histories of countries uh, where you're going through something that I would call a moral panic. Mm. So French Revolution has been one of my interests, like forever. Yeah. And watching, um, so there's usually some kind of real threat. Right. So French Revolution was being attacked by foreign powers, yeah. but then it became, you know, who, who's a spy? Mm. Who's unfaithful to the revolution? Who's, right. who who has a strange look to them, maybe we should denounce them. Right. And once you get a, a, a phalanx of professional denouncers, mm. <laughs> they yeah. just have to keep coming up with more and more people that they can denounce, right. or they're going to be out of a job. It's like Matthew Hopkins, the witch finder. Mm. You know, if you can't find more witches, you, you don't have a job anymore. That's right. So there are these enforcers, right? You call them denouncers, enforcers of, of policy. And maybe so, the tech has changed. So, so where does it all come from in the first place? It, it mm. comes from the idea that there is true dogma and there is heresy. Yeah. And uh, Catholics and Protestants had different approaches to this. So amongst the Catholics, if you were condemned as a heretic, you could repent, get absolution, and then somebody else would burn you at the stake anyway. Uh, so with the Protestants, if they were, if they were predestination uh, Calvinists, it had been predetermined from the beginning of time whether you were the damned or the saved. Right. So, so there was actually just nothing you could, once, once you had been identified as one of the damned, that was just kind of it. Mm. Uh, but it comes from the fact that there is this true dogma, mm. and a heretic is somebody who is not in, in absolute alignment, alignment with it. So right. it comes from these kinds of religious patterns right. that people have forgotten about, and they've forgotten who they're, 
who they've inherited this from. Mm -hmm. So it's like that. Yeah, and although we're living in this sort of secular state, ostensibly. So right? we think. Right. The <laughs> pattern is the same, and we're somewhere in that cycle, right? Somewhere in that cycle of uh, uh, sort of divide and force and change the rules and in terms of what is Sure, and, and then push back. So let me just remind you what, of what happened in the 17th century in England. You have, you have the English... Um, the overthrowing of the monarch. Mm. You have Oliver Cromwell being, in, in, in effect, a dictator for a while. He dies, and then there's a huge reaction against it, and you get restoration comedy. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? genre changes there. Yeah, yeah. completely, yeah. completely. Like we're going to push all the boundaries and say a lot of vulgar things because mm. we weren't allowed to under Cromwell, who had shut down the theaters because mm. they were immoral. Right. The consequences here of canceling these days seem quite severe. They, they threaten to, like, eliminate your existence. Again, yeah, right? I, I think it's particularly hard on... Um, mm. I mean, they had, they've had several goes at me, but you'll notice I'm still standing. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Elton John song, right? Like, you're still, <laughs> still but, here. But that is because I don't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. I don't have a job. I can't be fired. Right. My, my real employers are my readers. Mm. Thank you, readers. Well said. So it's, it's institutions that get cold feet and heebie-jeebies mm. because they think... Uh, oh, we, this is going to damage our image. Right. We're going to damage, so we have to get rid of this person because they're person. damaging our image. Right. But in, in social media time now, there's a kind of social capital that can be affected, right, by this. And well, your reputation. Concern. Yeah. And we're right, back to, we're right back to Shakespeare, who said yeah. it all. He who steals my purse steals trash, but... <laughs> Reputation. My reputation. Yeah, so your, if your reputation gets destroyed, basically right. people cross the street in order to avoid speaking to you. Uh, or you get shunned. You know, among certain, in certain cultures you get yeah. shunned. This expression sent to Coventry among um, union movements. People won't speak to you. You're like a non-person. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's all happened before. This, and it's happening right now, and it feels because it's the first time in our life cycle to this scale, right? Your life cycle. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> right? It feels like it's fresh. It feels like it's new. It feels like it's some kind of revolutionary. Well, of pattern, course, it's, it's the disruptive technologies come in, right. and they and they do change lots of things. So we right. we go Gutenberg printing press. Wasn't it great? It it enabled, you know, wonderful novels and right. cheap books and this wonderful accessibility of literature, but we forget what really happened. Right. So what really happened was that the Bible gets translated into vernacular languages. People read it. They think, oh, this isn't in the Bible. That isn't in the Bible. We're going to set up a different religion. And then there was 200 years of religious wars in which, in which millions of people died. Mm -hmm. uh, and also forth from the printing press poured a lot of uh, political pamphlets and porn and uh, cheap trash. So, uh, you know, that's, and the, it's always... Same pattern, right? Well, yeah. these new things are always disruptive. Right. Without the radio, we probably wouldn't have had Hitler. 
Huh. You know, we had wonderful symphonies and uh, Saturday night and Saturday afternoon at the opera and all the rest of it. And when TV first came in, it was going to be so great because we would be able to watch ballets on television. Have you ever watched a ballet on television? <laughs> <laughs> It's <laughs> quite silly. You know, the, the Germans had television in the 30s. They already had it. And they thought they were going to put it in movie theaters and people would be able to see Hitler's rallies live. But it was this little weenie Hitler in a little tiny screen going, which is silly because it made him smaller. Yeah. They didn't want him smaller, they wanted him bigger. That's right, just the voice actually, right? Well, the voice okay. went right into your ear because it was right. a new technology and people Absolutely. are mesmerized by new technology. Right. So the internet is like that. People have been mesmerized yeah. by it, but they're getting tired of it now. Yeah. You tend to be an early embracer, though, right? An adopter I'm not of, like, an embracer of, of anything. <laughs> but a, you adapt things. No, no. I like adopt. trying them out to see how they work, right. which is a different thing. Where do you think we're going to land with social media? Do you think, think these that, cancelings will I eventually implode? New, I think the kids, oh. uh, I think, first of all, I hear from kids of parents of teenage kids that they're done with cancel culture. One of them said, well, everybody at our high school has either been canceled or canceled everybody else, so we're just finished with it. We're not going to do it anymore. We're just tired of it. Um, so it's a generational thing. And, and if, the, if the parent generation has been thoroughly into it, the kids are going to think it's stupid. Right. Yeah. Just kind of wait it out kind of thing, right? Like eventually well, people get... I, I don't, yeah, waiting it out is maybe part of it. And that would be the advice I would give to somebody who's vulnerable, i.e. has a job. Um, <laughs> or hasn't, you know, um, doesn't feel very solid in the world. I would say, don't get involved. Don't, don't, yeah, just don't bother. Right? Don't spend your energy right on, on that. Okay, earlier in this conversation, you mentioned something, emotions that are unpleasant to have, okay? That you would rather not have. You'd rather not have. And so quite a lot of the book deals with grief. And I some, think... Some, some of it does. Right. So I'm going to have got news for you. What's that? I've got, I've got some news for you. Mm. Yes, don't take it too hard. Okay. Are you ready? <laughs> <clears throat> People get older. <laughs> if they're lucky, they get older. There's more, there's more. So for me, disappointment is the hard, hard emotion, right? But I think grief is waiting. You need never have disappointment if you don't have high expectations. <laughs> so the, the recipe. I can't, I can't live like that. No, no, yes, you can. No, I no. can't, I can't. High aspirations, oh. low expectations. <laughs> You want to look forward to a piece of cake or something at least, right? Like <laughs> something small. But like disappointment is hard yeah, for me. Yeah, you can look forward to a piece of cake, but don't expect it to be great <laughs> cake. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you're, you're going to, you know, nine times out of ten, you're going to say, I thought this cake was going to be so great, and it's just going to be meh. Uh, I'm disappointed. I'm, I'm never like that. Well... I'll go modestly into the future of my desserts. <laughs> so grief is hard, and I think in the West we've got a problem with grief, right? We're good at celebrating. We're good at weddings. Yeah, we, we're we, good at birthday we became parties. bad at it in the 20th century. That We were very good at it in the 19th century. 
They really right. had their grief nailed. So say more. We don't have the rituals. We don't have Italian widows. No, because we thought it was Victorian year. to to right. do all of that, and and people laughed at it. Uh, and anyway, it was going to be physical culture and health in the sun, and people were never going to get old or die. Right. <laughs> How did that work out for them? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, so it happens. Yeah. What is a tragedy is when young people die. Mm. That is a tragedy. It is, mm. it is the cycle of life when older people die. Fine, right. Uh, but it's not fun anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So my expectation is not that people aren't going to die. Mm. I know they're going to die. I just don't like it. Well, for sure. And we have no process, though. We have no culturally recognizable moment or period for this. We right? don't. Some, some parts of our culture do. So in, amongst, in the Jewish culture, you sit Shiva. Right. Uh, so it's a, it's a time period. And we do right. have, you know, we have the memorial service. Right. We have uh, Anglicans give the best funerals, I have to tell right. you. I've tried them all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's still the best. Uh, and it is an art to give a, a eulogy of somebody who's actually been quite a jerk in their life, you know, saying something, right, right. some way that you can make it somewhat positive. I've seen that too. There's a celebration of life, but I mean, just going hardcore into the grief, the wailing, the professional mourners, the whole... Yeah, whole we don't have right wailers now. or professional mourners no. anymore. No. Uh, but we might bring that back. What do you think? I mean... Hey, I'm down for that. Could right? it really... be a good job for somebody? <laughs> That's right. Take it off Twitter, you'd just be a professional mourner, right? Those skills transfer. So... <laughs> yeah, I, think you're, I think you're right about that. You know, it's short, it's emotional. Um, <laughs> It's right. public. Right. Yeah, there's something to that. So business opportunity for you. It's <laughs> <laughs> a startup somewhere. Someone's thinking about this. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate. I, I really do, actually. But why sort of, is Ivana Trump yeah. buried on that golf course? <laughs> I need to know. <laughs> I need to know what's going on there. <laughs> So my own idea is my own idea is that I'm going to get myself buried with a toaster oven, because <laughs> because then when the archaeologists dig me up in about a thousand years, they they'll say, what is this cult object? What is this? <laughs> worshipped as a god or was it's it a god? <laughs> That's right. She's cradling it right there. That's right. I mean, like aren't you thrilled when they dig people up and they find unusual things that they hadn't expected? Just so I, I want to sort of, you know, make that happen for somebody right. in the future. It's just somebody had a sense of humor, right? Back then, you never know, but it's not just a god or, right? I, I don't know. I just, I'm concerned we're narrowing our emotional bandwidth for, to just pleasure, right? To just fun, right? Um, and so these other kinds of textures of emotions, we just don't even... You mean people start. aren't ready for it when it happens to them? Yeah. Well, there's that too, and there's no example. It's like how some women talk about motherhood, like nobody told them what like having a kid would be like, and then they were surprised by it. Um, and I feel like with death, too, nobody's ever prepared for it because we okay, never... The part culture people didn't it. tell me was your hair falls out. Uh, this is the motherhood part. And so I, I said to my mother, my hair is falling out. And she said, oh, I was practically bald after I had you. She, she didn't tell me in advance. So I thought, what is happening? Right. Yeah, yeah nobody It's a copper imbalance. 
What's that? It has to do with the copper imbalance, apparently. Oh, the motherhood part. Yeah, yeah. Is it just the generally... hair falling and the part where your hair falls out? Right. It's an emotional rebalancing. I think we need, right? Um... About the hair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> culture and grief and everything. All right. Okay. I want to play a little game here. Here's a game. Moving on. Am Moving I, on. Am I ruining your evening? Deflecting am I, am I misbehaving? I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Yeah. Here's, here's, I was just dreaming about this for like a month or so. And what, what do I want to say? I'm going to give you a decade and you're going to tell me, I'll ask you something about it and tell me um, what was the best part of the 19... 60s, 60s. I wasn't oh. there. I want to know the 60s. The best part. <laughs> There's some very rude answers about that. Uh, <laughs> what was the best part of the 1960s? You were writing lots in of poetry. Canada? <laughs> well, in, in Canada, Canada we, were, we were very cheered up by Expo 67. <laughs> Montreal. Believe it or not, because it showed that we could actually pull off something like that. Um, Where were you in 67? I wasn't... I, I, went to Montreal in the fall of 67, so mm. I was right there. Mm. Um, yeah, so different. The 60s was not just one thing. Mm. The 60s was the 50s until about 1965, <laughs> Yeah. Um, so what happened in 1965-6? A couple of things. The birth control pill became generally available. And they hadn't perfected it. <laughs> so I said it had the what? Sorry. They had not perfected it. They had not. Um, so it, had some, it had adverse effects on some people, I have to say. Um, and the other thing that happened was pantyhose got invented. <laughs> Let's think about that for a minute. It's a mood landing, you know. No, if not for pantyhose, you would never have had miniskirts. Just think about it for one second. Yeah, miniskirts in that form. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, so I have to say, the moment of Twiggy was bad for me. It was a bad moment for me. You were supposed to have really straight hair. Oh. Yeah, just the Twiggy part. It was about three right. years long. Straight hair. Did I iron it? No, I did not iron it, but I did use some hair straightener on it oh. with bad results. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> it broke off. Oh. <laughs> Collectively. Cry, cry of so there were these straight wisps, and then it grew in curly underneath. So it was a diffi difficult a moment for me. Um, but right after that, we had something called the ethnic look. Mm. Mm. Afros? Uh, well, that and just generally curly hair. It was uh. okay to have curly hair and a lot of um, beads and sort of flouncy skirts. Right. Yeah, like that. Instead of the mini skirts, I wasn't very good with those either. Right. Didn't like them very much. And platform shoes. Where were you in the 60s? So you weren't... You were here at one period. I was all the over the place. Yeah. yeah. So I was um, I was at at Harvard in the early '60s. I right. took a couple of years off. I worked for a market research company. That was so interesting. Um, <laughs> we we pioneered pop tarts, which uh, <laughs> we tested them in with our testers, and they put them into their toasters, and they exploded. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we had tell Robin's story here. We had to replace all those toasters. <laughs> uh, so that was the market research company. Mm. So you're in Massachusetts there. Then I was here. Uh, I was at Vancouver. UBC. I was teaching grammar to engineering students in a Quonset hut left over from World War II. Mm. And we got along quite well. Mm. I understood them because I grew up amongst the scientists, scientists not the literary people, so I knew what they were interested in. They were interested in paradoxes. I was supposed to be teaching them grammar. Uh. So I gave them Franz Kafka's paradoxes and had them write imitations. Uh. It was 8.30 in the morning, so nobody was awake, but uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we got on quite well with that. Mm. And um, After Vancouver, where? After Vancouver... I went back to Harvard for two years. I had written a novel in Vancouver. I wrote The Edible Edible Woman Woman. in Vancouver on a a, um, card table. Mm. Does anybody remember Jane Rule here? Yeah, it's okay. So this was a card table lent to me by Jane Rule and Helen Suntoff, and I wrote it on my little portable typewriter in Vancouver on UBC exam booklets. (laughs) So each chapter is just long enough to fit into (laughs) UBC exam booklet. Um, Then I went back to Harvard. Harvard. Coast to coast, right? You're flying west coast, east coast. You're back there. Uh, And I did two more years there. Mm. And then I went to Montreal where I taught at what was then called Sir George Williams, but is now called Concordia. Concordia. And I was teaching Victorian literature and American romanticism. Mm -hmm. My students gave me a pin that said, Moby Dick is not a social disease. (laughs) 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 Thank you. Yeah, I, I enjoyed teaching. It much. I enjoyed teaching. I didn't oh. enjoy faculty meetings. Yeah, the administrative department. What can I department. say? And boring. you finished off the 60s in Montreal? No. <laughs> then we went to Edmonton. Uh-huh. Yes, and that's where I learned how to, how to draw up horoscopes. <laughs> Yeah. You don't just end the story there, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, it was Edmonton. It was dark. It was cold. It <laughs> rained, and then it froze. And nobody went outside because it was covered with ice. Right. So below me in this multi, in this two-story building lived a Dutch his, art historian called Jetske Sibisma. And in the cold, dark, icy Edmontonian nights... Jetska Sabisma, whose specialty was Hieronymus Bosch, oh. and some creepy Very little creepy. figures, yeah. which people had been interpreting as Freudian or Jungian figures, Jetska Sabisma quite accurately said, no, they are astrological symbols. Oh. So she was matching them up with astrology books, and in order to, from the time, from the period, and in order to do that, of course, she needed to know how to draw horoscope. So she taught me how to do that. This is before you could just go online right. and get it all printed out. You had to use a compass, right. ruler, calculate the Charts, angles. Yeah. So I was doing horoscopes for all the poets that I knew. I've, I've still got them. <laughs> and wow. along with the horoscopes, of course, you needed to learn palmistry because it's all connected. 
And uh, I already knew the tarot deck, which is also connected, because you had to know that in order to study late, uh, the early 20th century uh, literature, because it's in there. You realize this is a full lifetime and a decade there, right? Like, <laughs> what you've done, <laughs> all those moves. Okay, let's do one more, okay? The worst part of the... I heard the 90s here before. Worst part of the I, 1990s. I kind of missed the 90s. I don't know what happened. In the 90s. <laughs> I think, okay, so the wall came down. Y2K, that was 89, right? Like from yeah, there to the, like Y2K. The wall came down in 89, and yeah. I was there. Oh, you're in Berlin. I was in Berlin. The wall was coming down. You could buy pieces of it. Colored ones were more expensive. Um, I think they went out and colored some more at night and, <laughs> and have them laid out sort of, and you would buy pieces to make into earrings or whatever. And we were launching the film of The Handmaid's Tale uh-huh. in Berlin because the director was Volker Schlorndorf, who had directed The Tin Drum. Mm. Woo. <laughs> so Harold Pinter had written the screenplay, oh. uh, and Volker Schlorndorf was in his minimalist period. Pinter had written a voiceover for the central character, and Volker had taken it out, so she was uh-huh. left playing against her voiceover that wasn't there anymore. <laughs> the other filming story I have about that was I went down to visit the set. We are filming it at Duke University, because Harvard never let you film anything there. Oh, and I don't think not. they were pleased with me at that time anyway, because <laughs> they didn't like the thought of these bodies hanging on the Harvard wall. Right. Right. Uh, so we were down at Duke, and we were hanging somebody. We had it, the scenes all set up. We're stringing this person up oh. with a bag over her head. And they came they, around though eventually, but yeah, they did. <laughs> right. uh, the door to the chapel opened, and out walked a wedding rehearsal party. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were really not pleased at all. They were not at all pleased. Uh, so, so we had this film, and we were premiering it in West Berlin. Uh, so we showed it in West Berlin, and the chat was all about the direction, the acting, you know, all the things that people talk about with films. And they, it was very sort of that kind of cultural event. Right. And then we went across to East Berlin, and we showed it there. Oh. It was a very, very different experience. So not only were they throwing bouquets up onto the stage, but they were saying afterwards, very seriously, this was our life. Oh, wow. They didn't mean the outfits. Mm. They meant you couldn't trust anyone. You couldn't, you didn't know who was spying on you, which now we know is pretty true because everybody was spying on everybody else. Uh, So they felt it very immediately Yeah. in a way that um, people in the West West didn't so much. Right, right. So since I started typing it up in West Berlin, in 1984, mm. that's where I really got to grips with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very appropriate to launch it there. It's, yeah, full, a decade later, right? Just yeah. under a decade later. So from uh, West Berlin in the 80s, when we were there, we, we visited East Berlin at that time. Very different experience right. from 1989. Did you do other places in the communist Czechoslovakia, yeah. a little bit more open, but not much. You could talk to people, but you had to do it in a field. And they had to really, because everything was bugged. 
Oh, they, wow. And our hotel room was bugged. The guy bringing her bag up said, he said, Oh, wow. He was pointing to the chandelier. Yeah. And then he took us around behind and into an alcove and said, Want to change some money? <laughs> so when we had a light bulb problem, we just stood underneath the chandelier and we said, there seems to be a light bulb out here. <laughs> Three minutes later, knock, 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 light bulb. <laughs> yeah, so everything was bugged, but you, if you went out into a field, you could talk to people, they would tell you things. Then we went to Poland, and it was already pretty wide open there. So you could tell because taxi would drive up and he would say, dollars? And you would say, Zlotis? And he would leave. He didn't want Zlotis. And we, some of our clandestine Polish writer contacts took us to the Writers' Union, which was supposed to be the state organization, mm. you know, Communist Party, blah, blah. And they said, uh, want some Samizdat, huh. which was this forbidden literature. We said, sure. They said, wait here a second. They oh. were keeping it right on the premises. So I thought, this is the country that's going to crack first, right. which it did. Yeah, did you get as far as to Russia or? Oh, I wouldn't have gone there at that time. No. No. Yeah. Right. All right, I got the sign that we are a bit low on time. I think we should read a little bit and then uh, maybe we can take a couple of questions from the audience. Um, so, what are you going to read for us? I thought I'd just read the first two pages because oh, these are right. short stories, so I can't read a whole story. And just a trigger warning. I, I had a uh, high school gym teacher who would, who would spell B-L-O-O-D because she thought that we young girls were too frail and fragile to hear that word pronounced. So if you like, I will spell that word, but there's some of it in the story. <laughs> Nobody dies. <laughs> yes, first aid. This is all true, we did take a first aid course. Uh, Nell came home one day just before dinner time and found the front door open. The car was gone. There was a trail of blood splotches on the steps and once she was inside the house, she followed it along the hall carpet and into the kitchen. There was a knife on the cutting board, one of Teg's favorites, Japanese steel, very sharp and beside it a blood-stained carrot, one end severed. Their daughter, nine at the time, was nowhere to be found. What were the possible scenarios? Desperados had broken in. Tig had tried to defend himself against them using the knife, though how to explain the carrot, and had been wounded. The desperados had made off with him, their daughter, and their car. Nell should call the police. Or else, Tig had been cooking, had slifed himself with the knife, had judged that he needed stitches, and had driven himself to the hospital, taking their daughter with him to avoid leaving her by herself. This was more likely. He must have been in too much of a hurry to leave a note. Nell got out the bottle of carpet cleaner and sprayed the blood spots. It would be much harder to get out once they dried. Then she wiped the blood off the kitchen floor and after a pause, off the carrot. It was a perfectly good carrot. <laughs> no need for it to go to waste. 
Time passed, suspense built. She was at the point of phoning all the hospitals in the vicinity to see if Tig was there when he came back hand-bandaged. He was in a jovial mood, as was their daughter. What an adventure they'd had. The blood was just pouring out, they reported. The tea towel Tig had used for wrapping the cut had been soaked. Yes, driving had been a challenge, said Tig. He didn't say dangerous, but who could wait for a taxi? And he'd managed all right with basically just one hand, since he'd needed to keep the other one raised, and the blood was trickling off his elbow. And they'd sewn him up quickly at the hospital because he was dripping all over everything. And anyway, here they were. <laughs> Luckily, not an artery, or it would be a different story. It was indeed a different story when Tig, Tig told it a little later to Nell. His bravado had been an act. He hadn't wanted to frighten their daughter, and he'd been worried that he would pass out if the blood loss got out of control. And then what? I need a drink, said Tig. So do I, said Nell. We can have scrambled eggs. Whatever Tig had been planning to do with the carrot was no longer on the agenda. <laughs> the tea towel had been brought back in a plastic bag. It was bright red, but beginning to brown at the edges. Nell put it to soak in cold water, which was the best way to deal with blood-stained fabrics. But what would I have done if I'd been here, she wondered. Not a Band-Aid, insufficient. A tourniquet? She'd had perfunctory instruction in those at Girl Guides. They'd done wrist sprains, too. Minor emergencies were her domain, but not major ones. Major ones were Tig's. You have been listening to Books and Ideas Audio, a presentation of the Vancouver Writers' Fest. To hear more events like this one and view our upcoming events, visit our website at writersfest.bc.ca.